This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. A very momentous morning. All week long, we have been following the trip to the Vatican in Italy with all of the indigenous leaders from across Canada. And this morning, it sounds an awful lot like they may have gotten what they made that trip for. Joining us now for more on this is Crystal Gomansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief. Hi, Crystal. Hello. Okay, so what happened this morning? Well, it was sort of the moment everyone was waiting for after uh, three private sessions between Indigenous, Inuit, uh, Métis and First Nation delegations. Um, today was the meeting where everyone got together and the hope, the hope was that people would hear the words, I am sorry. Um, you know, when uh, Pope Francis started speaking, we heard some, some common phrases. He, he talked about the fact that um, he, you know, the respect that um, Indigenous people have for the land, um, their strength and resilience. He he said that, um, you know, his quote was, dear friends, I have been enriched by your strength and stories. But then we heard the words, I am sorry. And so that was the moment I'm told in that room that elders and knowledge keepers um, really broke down. There was there was intense emotion. There was there was crying. Uh, and so really, it was what many had been waiting for for so many years. We know at the last visit in, in 29 or in 2009, pardon me, um, we heard expressions of sorrow from Pope Benedict the 16th. But Pope Francis saying the words, I am sorry, also telling uh, all of the delegates that he will travel to Canada, saying that, you know, he's happy to visit your native lands. And he did make a joke there saying that, you know, he just wouldn't be going in winter. But it was the moment that many were waiting for, and it was the call to action, the request from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. So this is this is one of those momentous events that, that has been achieved because of the Truth and Reconciliation report. It sounds like it must have been a very emotional moment, too, the way you described it. You know what, just sit, I wasn't in the room, but sitting and watching these yeah. images, you have to think it's, you know, 194 um, um, delegates that were in that room for, from the, the different uh, communities. There were elders and knowledge keepers and survivors and young children uh, all sitting there. And it was a, kind of a neat moment where, you know, when the Pope sat down, all the cell phone cameras went up. And so people started snapping pictures. So it was a really interesting scene. But then you also had uh, Inuit drummers performing. And then at one uh, moment and you had Métis fiddlers performing and there's a beautiful scene towards the end. One of the last performers was a, a, a powwow dancer from uh, the First Nations uh, delegation and performing uh, what was called a, a fancy dance in front of Pope Francis and literally indigenous culture on display, full pride, the bright colors of the regalia just feet away from the head of the Roman Catholic Church. So that you know, journey between these two, between the idea of of, you know, um, erasing a people's culture to embracing it and having it right in front of the Pope was a very powerful moment to witness. Oh, it uh, sounds like, just watching all week long, actually, it has been so powerful to watch this unfold. So what are the next steps? And do we know anything at this point about the potential visit by the Pope to Canada? We don't have a timeline as of yet. He did joke that he didn't want it to be in winter. So, right. you know, it'll it'll have to happen, you know, in the next couple of months. And this is really important. Well, you know, the, the delegates that we've been able to speak with say that they wanted an apology. They wanted it to be in Canada. They, they, they want to have him 
on you know first nations to to talk to people so they can they can see the the sincerity and the understanding um which is one of the things that you know pope francis did talk about the the power the the you know how he's been enriched by these stories so hopefully that will be um shared soon uh and and that's the other part of this this overall journey is having more people feel like they're included so that this isn't just something that happened in rome to those delegates who are there but it is for for everyone for this this uh, a multi generational uh, process. Now, Crystal, I know you've been following this story all week long with this visit uh, from the Canadians. Has it seemed as though the Catholic Church here, the Vatican, has gone out of its way to welcome this delegation? Yeah, there is very much a sense of this wanted, they, they all wanted this to be a successful visit, that they wanted people to come away feeling that they were seen and heard, and, and that there is um, progress or a real move forward. And and we did also hear, um, you know, Pope Francis talk about the fact that, you know, he wanted to move forward. He wanted to move forward with transparency and and uh, thanked the bishops for, for, you know, their courage and their hu- uh, humiliation. Uh, with this delegation, uh, making a point of saying it was really important to have uh, everyone together. And, you know, a, a possible symbol of, of what this trip means for both sides uh, is a gift that Pope Francis actually gave to um, each of the main delegations. He gave out three um, really detailed, small, bronzed olive branches. So those gifts were presented, and one was also presented to a youth delegate to to show the idea of of going forward. So um, really symbolic and and incredibly emotional uh, conclusion here in Rome. But of course, more work to be done back in Canada. That sure sounds like it. Oh, amazing. All right. Thank you so much for this. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. What happened? That has been the question for more than two years when it came to that fatal train derailment that happened near the BC-Alberta border. This was just around 2019. Three Canadian Pacific Railway employees were killed in February of that year because 99 grain cars and two locomotives plummeted off a bridge. This happened near Field. So there has been an extensive report that was done into this now, and we're going to find out more about it. Joining us now is Kathy Fox, the chair of the Transportation Safety Board, to talk about that report. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. This sounds like a very extensive process. Is this kind of standard what happens anytime there is an accident or something like this happens? Well, the TSB investigates significant accidents in air, rail, marine, and pipeline, and and given the significance of this accident with the loss of of three CP Rail employees, um, it was important that we conduct an investigation, and the investigation was quite challenging given the circumstances in which it happened and the need to really test and analyze and simulate to determine what the braking performance on the train was and what the other factors that may have contributed to the accident, including training procedures and uh, the way that uh, the railway manages uh, safety hazards. So what were some of those challenging conditions that you mentioned? Well, first of all, even just deploying to the accident site, uh, as you mentioned in your lead-in, it's it's uh, in a very difficult-to-access uh, area, uh, down in a ravine, so it was, it was difficult to access the site. The, the temperatures were extremely cold. The accident site was spread over uh, more than a mile long. 
Um, and and so to document that site to recover uh, 13 cars that had not been damaged so that the investigation team could examine them and examine their braking performance in similar temperature conditions, which they did in Banff, uh, that was certainly challenging. And then, you know, just really trying to uh, scientifically analyze the braking performance so that we could reach the conclusions that, that we did. And what were those conclusions? What did you find? Well, what we found was that the uh, although the brakes had passed um, uh, a, a, an inspection uh, prior to the train departing Calgary, when it reached the very steep hill, Field Hill, which is a 2.2% descending grade, um, the, the, what we call the inbound crew, the crew that was bringing that train from Calgary, was unable to control the train speed at the 15-mile-per-hour limit. Uh, when the train speed uh, got to about 20 miles an hour, they put the, uh, the brakes into emergency to stop the train uh, on the hill with nine miles remaining before they got down to, to field. Then um, they found that uh, the train ended up sitting there for, for just over three hours. Uh, during that time, uh, whatever residual uh, air pressure was in the brake system, and, and particularly the brake cylinders, started to leak off. So uh, at some point, the, the train uh, braking uh, effectiveness descended to about 40%. It was no longer able to, to hold the train on the hill. And when a relief crew that had been brought in uh, to replace the, uh, the inbound crew who had reached the end of their shift, shortly after they boarded the train, the, the um, train started to move on its own. They really had nothing that they could do to stop the train there. It, it uh, accelerated to about 53 miles per hour and uh, was unable to negotiate a 9.8-degree curve and derailed just before the uh, Kicking Horse River Bridge, and then the locomotive fell into the ravine, uh, killing the, the three crew members. Oh, my goodness. So is this not a regular route, though, Kathy? Like, why in this particular circumstance did this happen? So it, it is. It is the main main route for CP from Calgary to Vancouver, and this hill is is one of the most challenging um, grades and, and terrains in in North America. But uh, what had happened is we found that there had been previous reports from train crews about poor braking performance descending that hill, and in fact, the locomo- locomotive engineer who was killed had filed uh, or had, had completed a, a safety report. Uh, when he had to use maximum braking just to control the train speed uh, the day before when he brought another train in. So uh, what we found was that these uh, the crews were, were making these reports about uh, braking capability of these grain trains on the on-field hill, uh, but they were not being uh, assessed and there was, no, there was no risk assessment conducted and whatever action, if any, was taken was not effective to resolve it. So this was recurring in cold seasons uh, year after year with no effective action being taken. And that's one of the reasons why we've made a recommendation to Transport Canada to require Canadian Pacific to demonstrate its ability to uh, identify hazards reported by its employees, um, assess the risks, and, and take effective mitigating action and validate that that action is effective. So this won't, you know, these sorts of accidents wouldn't reoccur. So is the TSB confident then that that situation has been dealt with in the two years since this accident happened? Three years? Three years, yeah. So uh, certainly uh, there was action taken even before our final report came out. We issued uh, three uh, safety advisories to Transport Canada and to Canadian Pacific. Uh, there were a variety of actions taken. For example, the minist- uh, Transport Canada implemented uh, a new rule or a new uh, a ministerial order which led to a new rule requiring the use of, of handbrakes 
when uh, trains are stopped on mountain grades that exceed a, a grade of 1.8%. Uh, CP also took a number of actions, including uh, verifying the uh, the wheel temperatures on grain trains going through that area and actually uh, pulled 5,000 grain cars out of service for repairs. But we found that, that more needs to be done. And, and the other two recommendations we're making, one has to do with better testing standards and also um, time-based uh, maintenance uh, requirements for brake cylinders so that um, they are they're inspected for and, and are in better shape. And then the other recommendation is for the use of automatic parking brakes. The issue that happened that night is that um, they did not use parking uh, they did not use hand brakes to secure the train on the grade. They use what's called retainers and that retains residual uh, brake pressure, but as the air was leaking from that system, uh, that decreased. So we would like to see uh, railway companies implement automatic parking brakes, which will come on all of the rail cars. It, it's much faster than applying uh, handbrakes on individual cars, and it will secure a train indefinitely. Um, so that's what we would like to see that uh, rail companies uh, implement, and mm. especially on uh, cars traveling through uh, uh, bulk cars traveling through mountainous terrain. Right. You said you would like to see that. So is that happening? Well, that's what will we're it happen? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're recommending. And, and of course, our recommendations are not binding, but uh, generally uh, Transport Canada, the Minister of Transport, is required to respond to our recommendations within 90 days uh, and to explain how and when they're going to address the safety deficiencies that we've, been, that we've identified in our three recommendations. And once we receive their response, we'll assess it, we'll, we'll publish our, our uh, assessment on our website, and we will continue to follow up with Transport Canada and the industry until these recommendations are fully implemented. So there is follow-up in a situation like this? Absolutely. And in fact, the, the uh, TSB has, uh, has issued um, many, many recommendations, in fact, over 600 to all modes, air, rail, marine, and pipeline. But uh, within the rail mode specifically, the, for the number of recommendations we've issued over the last 31, 32 years since we've been in existence, uh, we've had uh, 90% of those recommendations have been fully implemented. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that. That is Kathy Fox. Kathy is the chair of the Transportation Safety Board, uh, talking about their report they have issued into the what they call the uncontrolled movement of that train that led to the fatal train derailment um, just outside of field. This was in February of 2019, so about three years ago. Three Canadian Pacific Railway employees were killed when that happened. So as you heard the description there of what happened, you'd like to think these things get fixed, they get dealt with, but they will be uh, following up for more on that. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we are doing it this weekend. Absolutely. Vancouver Whitecaps back in action. They had a weekend off, but now they're going to be hosting the Western Conference foes that they have that is sporting Kansas City. It's happening tomorrow. First time that they've actually met since last year's playoff match. Joining us now to talk about it is head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, Vanny Sartini. Morning, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. You're doing this tomorrow, right? Like this is going to be different than last time. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going all in. We're going, and uh, it's going to be different than last time because it's in Vancouver. It's in front of our fans. So we're going to do it, not only as like a team, but we're going to need also the help of the fans. Too. Okay, you need the help of the fans. I think we can help you out with that. Uh, how's the team feeling? Like you had the week off there. What was your message to them? 
Well, you know, it's uh, it was good the week off. We uh, we worked a lot on things that we that we need to improve, and and more importantly, we had three four players that were uh, not good physically. They were recovering from an injury, so now they're back in the team. So I have much more choices, and uh, the guy that played with Canada very happy because they qualified for the World Cup, so yes. they come back with uh, with a lot of. Uh, I would say joy and uh, loaded up for the game. So I think we are in a good place. That, does that usually happen when the players come back after going off to play for their countries? Depending on what the results were, do they come back with a little bit of energy. Yeah, yeah. It depends. It's uh, when they when they go with the national team. I'm 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 always their biggest fan because you know if they if they win, they come back with a with a with a good vibe and uh, they can bring the vibe to the. Uh, to the team, so it's good. And of course, uh, being here in Canada, we, we're all happy that the national team qualified for the World Cup. Oh, we are thrilled about that. But Manny, <laughs> I- I'm sorry about I'm sorry about Italy. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. It's good to have a plan B. So I'm going to be rooting for Canada for sure. <laughs> That's good. That's a good choice. Okay, so you've got uh, Sporting Kansas City. Uh, what did you learn about this team from playing them in the playoffs? Well, you know, it, they're a very physical team, and. Uh, um, we need to be to match their physicality and to be smart in the sense uh, that uh, when we have the ball to to exploit our our strength. So being very fast in trying to play in their defensive third and uh, being aggressive like uh, we can be and, uh, and not conceding them too much uh, too much gain territorial gain, uh, especially at the beginning of the game. So I think it's a game tomorrow where. The first 15, 20, 25 minutes, we need to set the tempo of the game. Now, the first three of the four games that you, the team had have all been on the road. So now that you're back yeah. home, do you think that'll be different? I think so. I think so. Yeah, you know, last year we, we built our success here at BC Place, winning almost every game. And we know how much is hard in MLS with the travel and the different conditions that you find every time that you travel to win games on the road, so the, the 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 game that you play home, you we need to win. So as I said before, we're gonna have the help of our fans, and we're gonna have a little bit of pressure too because we we need to win. But last year we were very good when we had our back on the wall to react and uh, and uh, and come back strong. Okay, a little bit of pressure. And coach, did I hear correctly? You might have a little bit of extra pressure because you've got some special guests visiting for this game. <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, I have my ma- number one fans. My parents came from Italy to visit me, so they're going to be here for the game tomorrow and the game on uh, on Portland. So I have to be not only on my best performance, but also my best behavior on the bench. Because <laughs> if not, my mom is going to tell me, "Hey, did you did you did this? You did." <laughs> Does she actually do that? If she sees you yelling, you said, "Vanny, you were not behaving yourself." Yeah. Well, no, not about behaving. Sometimes he said that, uh, you know, you were at that interview and your shirt wasn't correctly, you weren't correctly. So, you know, and, <laughs> and you're like, mom, I've got bigger problems than my shirt yeah. and how it looked. <laughs> well, you know what? For that coach, yes, the pressure is on. Got to perform for mom and dad. And of course, the fans will do their part to help you out. So thanks so much for joining us. and Good luck tomorrow. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You know, we've all been there at some point. You've gotten a traffic ticket for something or another, and maybe you feel like you didn't deserve it. You shouldn't have gotten that, and you know that you have to contest it. Well, that process may be changing. The government here in BC has introduced a bill that will, I guess they call it close gaps in three pieces of legislation, meaning it could potentially be easier to dispute traffic violation tickets. So they're changing kind of the framework that covers how these tickets are disputed or even enforced in this province. You could actually go to the online dispute system now. So we thought, well, let's find out more about potentially how this could impact things. Joining us is Grant Gottgatry, who's a forensic consultant and retired police corporal. Thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be on your show, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Well, Grant, tell me, what do you think when you hear this? Like, do you think more people will want to dispute their tickets if it's easier? Well, I guess it depends on what the government means by streamlining and making it easier, uh, which they're kind of leaving that part out. I mean, I don't know how much of this is well thought out uh, by the government. Bless their hearts, you know, for trying. But <laughs> um, they they need to really explain it a little bit more because um, back when I was at on the job, which was only a few years ago, they were talking about uh, possibly closing traffic court down and making it a the uh, dispute process through uh, um, adjudicators, uh, so you could uh, do your disputes that way. Um, which, of course, you know, some of you know the police officers I worked with were like, "Oh, that sounds awesome! We don't have to go to traffic court." And I said, "Yeah, but the problem is then." every ticket you write is going to have to have some long-form narrative with it, like an immediate roadside prohibition that has to be presented to an adjudicator. So, Right. But uh, you actually you make a great I, point there, Grant, though. How much of an officer's time is tied up by having to go to court if somebody disputes a ticket? Well, it all depends on how many tickets you write at the end of the day, really. I mean, most general duty officers... Um, they don't write very many tickets a month, so they're not going to spend much time in traffic court. But uh, traffic officers, well, that's their mandate. Their mandate is to write traffic tickets. And in Canada, you have the right to face your accuser. So everyone has the right to dispute a ticket. So, so you know, so if you write tickets, you're going to go to traffic court. That's how it works. Um, it's not a lot of time. I mean, you're not spending all day there. And it's not every day of the week that you're working. Right, but it is a hassle, it seems like. Well, I mean, well, yeah, then don't become a police officer and, and don't <laughs> charge people. I guess that's the easiest way to deal with it, right? right I mean, but, it's like when you arrest an impaired driver, arrest a impaired driver, you know you're going to go to court for that. So, Like automatically, I mean, you just know that some cases are, I'm going to end up going to court, I'm going to have to go to court on this, defend this one. Well, that's the reality of, of police work is, you know, you're, you're charging people with an offense and and people that get charged with an offense, whether it's a traffic ticket or criminal matter, well, they have the, the right to have that evidence tested in court. And, uh, you know, you, I, I average it out during my career. There's 25 tickets in a ticket book and on average about 10% of those are disputed. So you're looking at about maybe three disputes per ticket book. Uh, so it's not exactly overwhelming. Right. Some people would just, you know what, like, I would feel, I feel too guilty sometimes. You just want to pay it right away and get it over with, but some people want right. to contest it, right? That's right. It, it, it's more of the, the, the tickets that tend to get disputed most are those that have the um, highest hit on, on insurance. So the tickets that, uh, 
using electronic devices and excessive speeds. If you write a lot of those tickets as a police officer, you're going to spend a lot of time in court. Hmm. What does it mean to move it to potentially an adjudication process? Like, how does that work? Well, it, it would be similar to how uh, an immediate roadside prohibition is, is disputed, where everything is done either by telephone or by a, uh, uh, it's either an oral review or a written review. So, but regardless, it puts more, if they did that with traffic tickets, it would put more uh, work, actually more work onto the police. Um, and it would actually put more work eventually on the uh, Supreme Court in Canada where appeals are heard. Because, yeah, sure, you might cut corners and now you're not having traffic court, but now there's going to be an impact uh, of more appeals because um, the way it works in traffic court with, with your notes as a police officer, you can use shorthand, you can use abbreviation and kind of cut corners that way and expand on it in traffic court. But you can't do that if it now has to go to an adjudicator because all of your evidence must be explained in detail and everything has to be in written form, including witness statements if it has to be a, happens to be a car accident. So uh, it's actually going to create more work for the police. If I mean, I, I mean, I'm speculating here, but I can't see... You know, I mean, like I said, bless the hearts of the government. They like to try to get involved in this type of stuff to streamline things without realizing they're, you know, they're plugging one hole and, and, and creating 10 more down the road right. without realizing. That is definitely the definition of how things work. So what, what, what would work, do you think? What would be a good suggestion from your perspective and your experience? With what? With If you were going to change things to streamline this system or make it more efficient, is there something that you can see in your experience that might work? Well, I guess make every driving habit legal and remove the Motor Vehicle Act because as long as you have free will, <laughs> you're going to have people out there driving like buffoons and getting tickets, and they're going to dispute their tickets regardless of what they are. I mean, I, I suppose if you want to streamline some of it out of traffic court, well, you know, take red light cameras out of traffic court, make that adjudicator, buy a law tickets. The, the, the tickets that don't carry any penalty points, you know, take those out of traffic court and leave the, uh, you know, simple, simple things like uh, not producing your insurance or having a burned out headlight, I guess. Those simple things, you know, those can go out of traffic court maybe, but moving violations where there's fines, high fines and penalty points, no, those have to be heard by, by a, by a, um, a qualified person who's got legal training, such as a judge or a judicial justice of the peace, not by an adjudicator whose training uh, consists of watching Matlock the night before, really, at the end of the day. (laughs) Well, as you say, the devil is in the details. Listen, Grant, thanks for your time on that this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. It is such an historic day. As we heard this morning, Pope Francis delivering a formal apology at the Vatican for all the harm caused by Canada's residential school system and the role the Catholic Church played in that. All this week, we know that Indigenous delegates have been visiting at the Vatican, telling their stories to the Pope. There was no promise of an apology, but it did come early this morning. And now there's a lot of talk about what the next steps are. But right now, let's get some reaction to what we have heard today. Bringing in now Rachel Ann Snow, who's an Indigenous legal advocate that we've talked to about these issues before. Rachel, thanks for being back with us. 
Oh, no problem. Good morning, Simi. What was your reaction when you heard that this morning? First of all, first my first reaction was I didn't believe it. My second reaction was to actually read the fine lines of what he said. And what he said was that he's apologizing for the actions of the church members who were involved in an educational capacity. So I, that's not really taking on the blame I, the blame for the Catholic Church. It's taking it's it's acknowledging uh, the actions of some individuals. So I think that that has to be, you know, in 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 law in with words words matter. So I think that that while I I watched what the uh, First Nations over there took it to mean that it was an exoneration or it was uh, the actual uh, church apologizing was the Pope apologizing on behalf of some of the members. Right. I can tell your legal background is kicking in here for sure, right? Because <laughs> so you're you're looking at this from a legal perspective about what it is exactly that the Catholic Church is saying here. Yes. And I so I read uh I read his um I read uh what the Pope actually had translated out and it was um I have to say, you know, we talk about Canada using special words and tactics and adopting some of our some of our ways of speaking using analogies and I saw that as well in what the Pope was saying. It was very well crafted. But I also noticed that it was not uh fully accepting blame on behalf of the church, but accepting uh blame or asking for forgiveness for those who had committed those atrocities. Right. But you know what? It was it's surprising, I think, for me anyway, that we even got to this point, Rachel, because I know we spoke to you earlier in the week and you didn't think we would actually get here. Well, I didn't think that we'd get the church to um, actually take responsibility. And I don't think the church has. I think the church has taken responsibility for a few of its members, but not as an institution, I guess. Right. So what what kind of a difference would that make legally if they did that? Well, then uh then they're subject to litigation and then they would be they would have to then uh assist in the other demands such as the uh survivors uh remuneration, accessing the um, uh records so that the survivors could actually make their cases that there were atrocities, further atrocities that happened that the church probably knew about or had uh, had very good being being the Catholic Church. They probably had knowledge of uh, the incident, so that's still not uh, the church has not gone that far. So I guess it's pushing a little bit every single time. And again, we talked about uh, this contingency going over there to ask. If there is wrongdoing and I go ask a bully to apologize, I'm sure he will. If I go twice, he might even say, you know, he's sorry having, you know, dug up some defam- defamation letters about me in the backyard. But he should have apologized at the first instance. Then when they found the 215 bodies at Kamloops, he should have said, in addition to our first apology, we are also now apologizing further to encompass that. The church, the uh, the Catholic Church has never done this. What they've done is react when somebody went over there and asked for the apology. So I don't know how heartfelt, morally responsible, legally responsible um, the Catholic Church has ever felt in this matter. 
what do you think the next steps are here? Like, as you say, it took a long time to get to this point, but what, what do you, what would you like to see happen now? I'd still like to see Canada, uh, repeal that claim, appeal the claim that, uh, the Catholic church used in Saskatchewan, where they sort of, uh, let the Catholic church off the hook for, uh, setting up a fund to help with the survivors, uh, healing or anything else that needs to be done, the access to records, and uh, an actual, I guess, um, admittance of the role that the church played, knowingly uh, having these these members or this information uh, that was ongoing happen, how it comes up to, you know, the various uh, levels in the church, but eventually gets to the Pope's notice. I think we need to know, you know, that each time that this happened, that there was some somebody at the top who understood and who knew and who now is uh, taking full responsibility for the actions of the church and saying what the next steps forward going or will happen so that they can finally um, meet the uh, meet the uh, requirements or, mm-hmm. or do something for their survivors. So we've heard that the Pope intends to now travel to Canada. We don't know when exactly that will be. What do you think, Rachel Ann, has to happen in that visit to take a meaningful next step? Well, I think he said he's coming during the St. Anne's. I think he's, he said in the wintertime. Uh, so he said, he's talking about the St. Anne's, something or other around St. Anne. I don't know what it is. Uh, but I think uh, what has to happen certainly now, between now and then, is I think that uh, Canada has to get on the ground with the First Nations people and those affected by that, by those schools, and start uh, consulting, listening, preparing, uh, prepping. You know, a large group and drawing from from them the direction that needs to happen in order to adequately prepare for the Pope's visit here. I don't think uh, it should be. Um, you know, all the higher-ups talking, I think you need to have the people on the ground who are hurt come forward and give suggestions and take those suggestions, you know, meaningfully in a good way forward. Is that what you're going to be watching for then, to make sure that the, it's the grassroots people who get to have their voice heard? Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just keep uh, pressuring and keep saying that we need to have the people on the ground have their say and have their stories out because... There can't be healing. There can't be moving forward. There can't be reconciliation until people feel they've been heard and there's action taken towards helping them heal through the uh, trauma, intergenerational trauma, the hurts and harms, the sexual abuses. We need all of that in order to restore our people to a place of, um, to a place of wellness. Right. Rachel, hey, Rachel, thank you so much for being with us today.